We are in the book of Romans, uh, chapter 12. It is our last uh, Sunday in this particular section of Romans. Uh, We start next week in a a summer in Psalms, praying the Psalms. Uh, In fact, Psalm 90 is the text for next week. So if you would like, read ahead just a little bit. Uh, Read through Psalm 90 as we prepare um, to go through that particular passage. Uh, But our goal, our hope through Romans 12 has been to look into what it means to embody uh, some of the ethics of the kingdom. Uh, to actually live out our faith in real practical ways. Uh, sometimes we talk about faith as, it is, it's, as if it's this distant thing up here some, somewhere, or it's a set of theological ideas that we can kind of hold to. Uh, and faith, if not practiced, faith, if not lived out in the day-to-day, uh, becomes really a, a faith without power. It becomes something that, uh, that is far from what I think uh, our Father intended and for what Christ demonstrated. So it has been uh, our goal to like, push into that a little bit, to see conversations start in group, uh, for us to have to wrestle with it. Uh, I know in many conversations that I've had with you that uh, this, this text has been challenging, right? It asks a lot of us, uh, obviously enabled by Christ, right? It says at the beginning, it's the mercies of God that enables us to do this. Uh, But nonetheless, it is challenging. And I think our final passage this morning is no less challenging. It might, in fact, be the most challenging of all of this particular uh, section. Um, And as a speaker, you've probably picked up on this, but speakers generally like to speak on topics that they feel like they're just really crushing it at, you know? What I mean by that is um, it's easy to tell people to be all about truth-telling if you're working really hard to be honest or to encourage people to say, you know, you should be faithfully giving if you yourself are trying to live with a generous posture and share your resources with others. And then there are some passages that then you get to and you're like, oh, man, this one's tough, and then I have to talk about it in a little while, right? And you start to read through it, and one of the things that I've loved uh, and considered really a privilege over the last eight years is for me to have to, have to, uh, be convicted by the Spirit week in and week out, to, to have to wrestle with the text and allow it to change me before encouraging it to change you. Uh, it has been one of the things that, um, that anytime the Spirit can kind of kick your butt a little bit, you know, and get you to, to live out uh, or try uh, within the Spirit's power to live out your faith uh, is a good, a good challenge. Uh, but in all honesty, this passage that we're looking at this morning has been one of the more difficult things for me to live into over the last couple of years. That if you were to look at the last several years, this would be um, maybe a passage that uh, has sharpened my faith the most, that has uh, given me uh, the greatest nights of lack of sleep or uh, has hindered my spirit the most, is uh, this kind of passage. So I speak out of it not as, uh, and this is never the case, not as an expert, but rather as a, a person learning on the journey with you. And so... Um, let's, let's look at the text this morning. It's one of the strongest teachings on the idea of what it means to love our enemies. In Romans chapter 12, if you're there, if not in, on the screen, it says this, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, 
Give him something to drink, for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let me pray, and then we'll try to break this passage down a little bit. Father, we, uh, we want to hear from you. We believe that when we gather together that your presence is here, and that in unique ways we're able to worship you differently, hear from you differently, uh, maybe focus on you in ways that we don't uh, tend to throughout the week. And so I ask that you would uh, not hinder uh, anything this morning, but that you would allow uh, your truth to go forward, that you would speak to our very hearts and lives, our minds. Uh, may they be renewed, like the, the Romans says, that, that the whole of our being would be renewed, that we'd be transformed to the image of your Son, and that we could live out and these teachings, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is, a, this is a pretty difficult section. So if you were to look at the verses above it, verses 14 and following, you're going to see phrases like this uh, in the section. You're going to see it say, uh, Bless those who persecute you. Uh, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty. Repay no one evil for evil. Do what is honorable, live peaceably with all. I mean, these are pretty lofty, pretty challenging truths to live out. This is the ethic we're being called to through Christ, right? And then our passage this morning adds to that this. Never avenge yourselves. Love your enemy by meeting their needs. So if they're hungry, feed them thirsty. Give them something to drink. And then lastly, overcome Evil with good. I think as I was reading through this list again of, of teachings, I, what struck me the most is the tension in the text between what I want to do and what I'm called to do. Right? This, there's this crazy space between those two ideas, right? That we sit in that space between what we feel like we want to do and maybe at times feel justified to do and that which we are called to do, or invited to do. So, if you've been hurt, and I assume that most of us could say at some point we have, if you have an enemy, uh, if you have open wounds, then this list is not a list that you or I desire to do, right? I mean, the, the last thing I want to do is to bless the one that's cursed me. The last thing I want to do is to be happy when I see them succeed. The last thing that I'm thinking about is living in harmony or at peace when what I feel is wounds that are deep. Maybe you've been there with me in that space, but this whole section, I think, is that contrast between what we want to do and what we're called to do. And I want to try to highlight that this morning. So here's the first thing that I think we want to do. It's found in this first section. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. What I want... And maybe what you want is revenge. I mean, if you think to a moment, just capture a moment in your mind when you were deeply wounded, when you were wronged in some significant way, and for some of you, that thought has already popped up before I finish the sentence. For some of you, it's so raw because you're right in the middle of it. 
For others of us, maybe it's a couple years removed, but each time you touch that scar, each time you reopen that wound, it's as if it's right there again. And what we want so badly, the natural reaction is revenge. I mean, Shakespeare said it this way, if you prick us, do we not bleed? If you tickle us, do we not laugh? If you poison us, do we not die? And if you wrong us, shall we not revenge? I think revenge seems to be one of the deepest instincts that we have. Whether it's the revenge in the heat of the moment, whether it's a month removed, two years removed, ten years removed, when that wound is opened, when that scar is touched, what I want, just speaking for myself, is revenge. And it might be the very thing that you desire as well. Because I think a desire for revenge is, one of the reasons is because wounds are not isolated. They have these crazy ripple effects. The other day, I was uh, in Coeur d'Alene area. I was at a board meeting, uh, and I sat down. I was taking notes, and I had one of those pens that's just like a, a complete ink well on the inside. And I opened the lid, did not know that the tip was broken, and so I'm just holding the pen for a while while it's apparently leaking and I'm unaware, Okay. And so I'm sitting there, and this is happening, and then all of a sudden I look down, and I've got a little bit of ink on my hand, and I'm like, oh man, that stinks, and I set the pen down, and then all of a sudden I looked, and my hands, apparently I touched my face at some point, right? You get the idea. So I'm like, all over my beard, there's ink everywhere. And for like 10 minutes of the meeting, I'm like trying to wipe it off, I'm dip, dipping like a napkin in, in water, and like, just, it was everywhere. And that's what it is, I think, with wounds, right? We say that the wound is particular, that it, that it cut in a certain way, but then you start to realize the impact of that, and you start to see the ramifications, and it's like that pen, it goes everywhere, right? I mean, it's not isolated to just how you feel. There's an effect on your health. There's an effect on your energy and your emotions. Deep wounds have an effect on your family, your loved ones, your friends. You start to think about the collective impact that happens as those ripples extend further and further and further, and it's staggering. The cost, the hurt, the wounds that ripple. And what we want, what I want, is revenge. But the text says, never avenge yourselves. Never. I mean, I, I was, when I, the first couple times I read it, I was hoping for like a little bit more wiggle room, to be honest, right? Like, sometimes avenge yourselves. That might feel a little better. Or only if they really, really deserve it, avenge yourselves, right? Because the art of returning evil for evil is pretty easy, if you think about it, right? But here, the problem with revenge is also that it escalates. It always escalates. You've received evil, you do evil back, and generally you don't think about how you can get exactly even. You think about how it can hurt a little bit more. We always one-up one another, and so revenge escalates in ways that sometimes get out of control. So what we want is revenge, the text speaks into, but what we need is trust. So the next little phrase says this, Right after, never avenge yourselves, in the ESV it says, but leave it. Another version says, never take your own revenge, but leave room. 
Not avenging yourselves in a more literal translation, but give peace or give place. So the verb translated leave room literally means to give place. Another way that we could probably say it is to create space, to leave room for God. Maybe another way of saying it would be something like this, get out of the way and give God back his job description. Instead of us taking on that responsibility. Because what we're in essence saying is that I can somehow exact the just amount of justice. The right amount, at the right time, in the right situation, for the right reason, with the right intentions. And if you're anything like me, you realize that that's impossible. Right? And so what he's saying is leave, leave space or leave room. It reminds me of this story in the scriptures that uh, I've, I found really comical when I was in junior high, and uh, you'll understand why in a moment, but uh, David and Saul, many of you know the stories of David and Saul. Saul was this king, he was powerful, he was a ruler. Uh, David became a, a national hero in Israel. He killed uh, Goliath, and then they started making this chance that he's like a, a superhero, so to speak. Saul started to get really frustrated with uh, the attention going elsewhere. Uh, he brought David into his court to keep him closer to him, uh, at which point when he was mad, he would throw like javelins or spears at David, and he would drop his harp and jump out of the way. And eventually, the culmination of this energy between the two of them led to David fleeing for his life. And we get to this passage in 1 Samuel, and it says this, uh, Saul returned from attacking the Philistines, and he said, Behold, David, he was told that David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then it says that Saul took 3,000 chosen men, so he didn't choose guys that looked like me, but chose some really strong fellows, right? Uh, in all of Israel, the best of the best, the biggest warriors, the best fighters, and he s- set off to seek David. And he came uh, to this certain place, and uh, he went to the cave. And this is where, in junior high, I thought this was cool, Saul went in to relieve himself, right? So he goes in to go to the bathroom. And uh, he doesn't want to do that out in the open. He decides to go into a cave. He makes his way into the cave, and uh, he starts to take care of business. He happened to be in there long enough, uh, as a man would perhaps, and uh, went to the bathroom and along comes David who's hiding in the back of the cave, the text says. He's there with his men. It's a small little band of army, a small little group of men who are kind of his protectors. And at that point when uh, Saul's going to the bathroom, he simply slips up and cuts the edge of his robe, goes back into hiding Saul leaves the cave, exits the cave, and uh, then David uh, says, here's the day of the Lord has given him into your hand, someone says to him, Um, and then David arose and cut off the corner of Saul's robe. So then Saul leaves, and the text goes on to say this, why do you listen to the words of men? David follows him out and says this to Saul, behold, David seeks your harm. This day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you. Some told me to seek revenge. Some told me that this whole situation would be over if I ended it right here. But I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against the Lord. 
or my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand, for by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no reason, wrong or treason in my hands. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, out of the wicked comes wickedness but my hand shall not be against you. What he's saying is that out of the wicked comes wickedness, but I choose a different path. Out of the righteous comes righteous. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, it is your voice, my son David. And Saul lifted up his voice and wept and said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. Now the crux of that story comes down to one, in my opinion, one big idea, and that is the idea of trust. There was a moment that David could have done exactly what David had probably thought of numerous times. And at that exact time, a group of men around you that have been supporting you, encouraging you in the midst of it, give the advice of saying, do it, end it, the whole thing's over if you do this right now. And instead, in that moment, right, he decides to trust. And so here's the question, I think, for all of us to answer. Do we trust that God is ultimately going to take care of everything? Do we trust, do we have faith to believe that it will actually be up to God to handle judgment? Or do we somehow want to take that job description away from God? Do we wake up in the morning and give it to God because that's the faithful, trusting thing to do? Or do we wake up in the morning and we go, man, I'm just going to exact revenge? Because we don't really need to pray about that if you think about it. That's the easy road to take. It doesn't require any trust. If I get up in the morning and I exact revenge, if I go eye for an eye, if I go evil for evil, um, I will probably be graciously enabled to do evil to my adversary. But it is in that moment of trust where I can actually say faith is the evidence of things not seen. Trust that in not seeking revenge will be avenged. To trust that in loving we will be vindicated. To trust that in grace there is healing. I mean, these are difficult things to hear, but at that moment when we want revenge, I think what we're called to is trust. Here's the second big idea in the text. The text goes on to say this. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Okay? So Paul goes on to say, don't avenge yourselves. Instead, trust that vengeance is the Lord's. He goes on to describe what our response should be. And in that section... I believe that what he is saying in some ways is that what we want is hurt. We want the other to experience hurt. I mean, that makes common sense, right? Our whole culture tells us that the the proper response to um, an enemy is to kill them, to end it, to be done with the situation, not to bless them. Vengeance, in fact, is defined as this. The act of doing something to hurt someone... Because that person did something to hurt you or someone else. At the very core of revenge, the very core of 
vengeance is this idea of doing something to cause pain. Doing something to invoke hurt in someone else. It's a form of power we take, of control, because we get to seize the situation, so to speak, and exact revenge by bringing pain. But the text says that our response should be to feed them when hungry and to give water to them or drink when they're thirsty. The exact opposite, right? But then you have this odd bit in the passage, and you've probably noticed this. There's this weird little phrase that says that in doing those things, that you will heap burning coals on their head, right? I know uh, it's a little odd little section, and uh, growing up, here's how I heard this play out. If somebody really hurt you, be extra, extra nice to them, and it will piss them off. (laughs) That's how I heard it. Or the phrase some of you have heard or said, kill them with kindness, right? That you could actually like make them hurt so bad, make them watch them burn, so to speak, because they're just infuriated at your kindness towards them. Right? And that's often the way that I've heard it. You know, like this kindness is like a, a like a divisive little way of actually flipping them the bird. That that's that's how we get around to it, right? <laughs> That's what we want to do, but now we can kind of like scoot around it. And it it almost is saying that we get our own way in this thing. That we get what we want. And most commentators will either say that, or they'll say a second idea, which sounds maybe a little bit better, where they say that we should love them because God is the one that actually heaps the coals on their head. Okay? That it's not us, it's him. So we've, we've given that away. So the, the context would be coals of fire. The idea is that it's an allusion to anger or judgment. So in the context, when God says, I will repay, our act of kindness is a way of letting him go about bringing fire or judgment or pain on the person. Okay, So that's a commentator's way of saying, here's another approach in looking at the text. Again, to me... Neither of those seem in line with the spirit of the passage. Neither of those seem to embody the ethic that verses 14 through 21 really call us into. So what I want to do is maybe propose a few more radical kingdom alternative understandings to the passage. All right? And uh, it's because I believe that part of the kingdom ethic is to actually love enemies, right? That's what Christ has communicated all throughout the scripture, is to not just bear with them, not just ignore them, but go the extra mile and actually, like Christ, love them. So the question is then, what does this actually mean? And I would argue that when we want hurt, what it is inviting us to do is to bring blessing, Though when we want hurt, when we want to exact hurt on someone else, what it's inviting us to do instead is to bring blessing. And I want to explain that by this interesting story of Jesus in the Gospels. So Jesus uh, is recorded in the book of Mark. Um, Jesus is at this point where he's around a bunch of religious leaders. And, And generally when you think of stories of Jesus, you don't think of anger. I mean, there's very few stories. In fact, there's maybe one story that we usually point to when uh, we say in righteous anger, he went and flipped over the tables in the temple and he told them to get out and said, my house is a house of prayer. And we point to that one moment in which Jesus was angry. And then basically the rest of the time, it's just like Jesus just loved, right? 
And, and anger is not an uh, emotion that we see as one of Jesus' top emotions. But you get to this little section in Mark uh, chapter 3, the verse, first five verses, and what you see is that Jesus, the text says, is like seething with anger. He's deeply frustrated. Okay, He's at this moment where he's in the, in the synagogue. The religious leaders are around him. There's a man that has a withered hand. No ability to use his hand. He's near Jesus. And uh, Jesus invites that man over to him. And when he does, the text says that they all kind of get a little bit excited. Because they're like, it's the Sabbath. And we're going to catch this guy. He's going to do something. It's going to be work. And and it's going to like totally discredit everything he does. Right? And so this moment is like, you can feel the tension in the room. You, you can sense what they're waiting for, and Jesus senses it too. And so then he simply says to them, uh, is it okay for someone to do good on the Sabbath? I love how he does that. Asks these questions that then make them, you know, like just even more furious, right? So they're angry in the room because they're like, you're, you're trying to tell us that we're saying that good can't be done and what we're saying is that work can't be done and now you're probably going to do something that allows us to trap you and Jesus, in that moment, the text says this, and he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. So Jesus has this moment of righteous anger at the hardness of their heart and then the text says that he responds. And so the question becomes, when we're in a place of anger, what is the response that we're supposed to have? And if we're in some way supposed to mimic or look like our Father or engage in the way the world that Jesus did, Jesus responds to the anger by saying this, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched his hand out and his hand was restored. Jesus in that moment, I think, models for us a response to anger. What he models is that uh, revenge-seeking, this idea of evil for evil, anger for anger, hatred for hatred, not acceptable. Rather, that there's this beautiful way of doing kingdom life, and that is to, in turn, bless. He takes this man who's had a shriveled hand for probably his whole life, and into that moment he, of anger, he blesses. He breathes life. He does something beautiful. He takes beauty and out of difficulty. He creates this moment that um, perhaps Paul had in mind when he wrote these words. Because Paul refers back to Proverbs 25, 21 to 22, which says that in that moment, meet their need. If they're hungry, give them something to eat. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. And so maybe here's another way of looking at what this idea of heaping burning coals means. One alternative idea would be this, that blessing them might actually lead them to repentance. That blessing might actually lead them to repentance. That if there's this person that in some way is exacting evil on you, has hurt you, has wounded you, that your blessing of them is not with the the subtle way of hoping that heaping, burning coals descend on them, or that God enacts some form of judgment, but that into that difficult time, into that time of anger, into that time of revenge, that you get to speak blessing, to give hope, to demonstrate love, and in doing so, it might actually bring that person to repentance. There's a text that says that it's God's kindness 
that what? Brings us to repentance. So often we think of it's, it's God's effort that brings to repentance, or it's God's punishment that brings to repentance, but it's God's blessing. It's His love. It's His kindness, the text says, that leads us to repentance. It's that grace, that faithfulness renewed every morning. So one idea would be that it might actually lead them, that in blessing them you might lead them to a change of heart. But the second idea uh, has to do with coals. So in Old Testament times, and, and certainly in certain cultures in our time, even today, uh, heated coals are vitally important for the life of someone. See, heated coals back in that time would be the very life-giving elements of cooking food, of boiling water, and of creating warmth. And so, often on occasion, what would happen is people wouldn't have the resources necessary to keep their little fire going. And as the day wears on, their fire's going, they've been cooking, and, and at some point they run out. And they have no fire. It's not like they can just do what we do, which is grab some more lighter fluid, toss it on, strike the match, throw it in, it's burning again, and we're like, let's cook some more, right? Bring the brats on, right? None of that happens, right? Instead, it's like they have to go through this tedious procedure of trying to gather more coals, more wood, more, and then figuring out how to get the fire going and getting it started. And, And this whole process has to happen before warmth comes, before food comes, And for many of them, before the water can be boiled for them to actually drink. And so, as tradition would have it, what would often take place is that you would go to the neighbor. Somebody that lived near you. And you would simply, just like you carried the water on your head, just like you carried other things on your head, you would have this little bucket. It tended to be a metal bucket. You would place it on your head. And then you would walk to your neighbor's house. And then you would kindly ask them if they would provide you with a few coals that you could then take back to your fire and you could breathe new life into your fire and and that it would be a blessing from one neighbor to the other. It would be life-giving. And so some would argue that perhaps what he's referring to is this process where you would go to a neighbor and say, would you bless me? And what this text is maybe saying is that really what we're called to in that moment when we want revenge and in that moment when we want hurt is to love in such a way that if that neighbor, if that enemy, if that one who wounded you came to you, that you would provide them drink, that you would provide them water, food, whatever necessity they have, but that it, that doing that act is like when your neighbor comes and instead of giving them a little coal or two, that you just heap burning coals into their pot so that they take back life to their family, that they have an opportunity to, to, to reestablish food and water and warmth. But it's this picture of beauty. And instead of uh, anger coming out, that what comes out is blessing. And then Paul finishes his last phrase with this. He says, do not become overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now I think this little phrase is actually a summarization of the entire passage. So from the very beginning when it says that we're supposed to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice to the point where it says we're supposed to be humble in verse 3 to the point where it begins to outline what it looks like to live into these Christian values 
all the way down to this point where what it says is we're supposed to bless and heap burning coals and demonstrate great love, even in the midst of hurt, to our neighbors. That Those postures are postures that actually overcome. That we're supposed to, there's really two choices. The choices are either we are overcome by evil, right? Don't be overcome by evil. The one option is that we would be. The other option would be that instead of exacting revenge, instead of asking for hurt, instead of giving an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, that we actually choose the posture modeled by Christ. That even on the cross, he was able to say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And that even as people were standing around, he demonstrated love in that moment. And that's the actions of an overcomer. It's actually um, a high calling. And in some ways, an impossible calling. Apart from Christ. That's why our world, if you look at it, is full of revenge. We constantly live into that and notice it doesn't go away. Because when you respond that way, it comes right back. And it just keeps cycling revenge. But rather, we can live into a new way. A way demonstrated by Christ. This morning, we are going to invite you uh, to partake of communion. It is a, a perfect illustration of this very thing we're talking about. That we can overcome, by the grace of God, evil with good. Let's pray.